from Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. I think that we need to be using this new industry to address the harms that have been done by the war on drugs for the past 40 years. And have- Because we passed the most progressive law yes. in the country. That's yes. right. surprising. And so we just... This gives us an opportunity to bring these young brothers out of the dark and provide uh, a marketplace for them to step forward. Um, and, and sadly, really... After Massachusetts legalized recreational cannabis in 2016, it sounded like social equity was on the tip of many tongues. Everyone seemed so hopeful back then, and with good reason. Massachusetts was the first state where baked into state law was this idea that I think is most easily explained as it's fundamentally about fairness. This is Dan Adams, cannabis reporter for the Boston Globe. It's a recognition that when you look back on decades of enforcement of marijuana prohibition and how that played out, what we see uh, when you look at those numbers is that very disproportionately fell on black and brown communities. When Massachusetts voters were presented with the legalization question in 2016, they narrowly voted yes. It was a record year for legalization. But then Massachusetts would go on to set another record, one that we discussed a bit in the last episode. So if you haven't listened, I would go back and do it now. But Massachusetts became the first state to promise a leg up for, quote, people from communities that have been previously disproportionately harmed by marijuana prohibition and enforcement. The Cannabis Control Commission was tasked with promoting participation in the industry among those communities, providing resources like workforce development programs, seminars, or expungement clinics to wipe old marijuana convictions. Now that we've legalized it, now that we've admitted as a society, this probably never should have been illegal in the first place. We should have an industry where people from those disproportionately affected communities are able to have a real stake in it to start their own businesses. But Dan says if you look at the industry right now, it looks nothing like that. Putting this into practice has proved enormously difficult for a few different reasons. One is that under our law, cities and towns have a huge amount of control over which applicants are able to, in turn, go on to apply to the state for a state license that they need to open. And so, like, mayors and city councils uh, almost get to handpick applicants the way that this works. It's been a huge barrier to entry and a huge reason that we have we don't have a more diverse industry. Or, and another reason it's been hard is uh, federal prohibition and the way that that affects banking. You can't just go down to the bank and get a small business loan if you're a disenfranchised entrepreneur looking to open a cannabis store. It's not that easy. I think those are the sort of the two biggest things that have kept our industry so far, you know, largely white, largely male-dominated, and you've seen a lot of of minority-owned businesses, you know, sort of dropping out of the process. But why are they dropping out? This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. This season, called Fair Shake, we're asking some big questions about some big promises. Today, a story that has gone on to shape how cannabis is regulated in Massachusetts. And it starts with the state's promise to create a fairer cannabis industry. 
Now, it's a whopper of a promise. I'm not sure if any industry in this country can be called totally fair. But that's why it's worth putting a magnifying glass on Massachusetts. Because there's some universal lessons here. We're starting with a Boston neighborhood called Mattapan. Mattapan is in the southern section of Boston. It is a overwhelmingly black neighborhood. It is a somewhat lower-income neighborhood. And it has struggled um, economically, and it has struggled uh, you know, with the lack of public transit and investment and things like that. And it's also a community that was heavily criminalized during the war on drugs. It's a place, because it was overwhelmingly black, it, it was a place where marijuana prohibition you know, was a daily reality for, for people who lived there for a really long time. And Mattapan, like any other Boston neighborhood, gets to have a say over whether a pot shop opens up on Main Street. That kind of approval was up to the elected neighborhood association. And when I say it's up to them, I mean they can take as long as they want, they can act as quickly as they want, or they can just refuse to approve a business altogether. And in 2019, there were at least two men vying for the chance to open up the neighborhood's first pot business— one of them was Chauncey Spencer. I grew up in that area. <laughs> I more or less grew up, uh, you know, within maybe a mile of the, the store, which I was trying to open. Chauncey is not only an economic empowerment applicant, but he was the first one in the whole city of Boston. These kinds of applicants have to prove that they're from certain neighborhoods that have been over-policed, and they have to prove that they're hiring at least a certain share of employees from that neighborhood. And these are all requirements that are there to protect advantages for people from disadvantaged backgrounds. People like Chauncey, who have sold weed before it was legal and paid the price. You know, it just looked like it, it was an opportunity to employ mm-hmm. folks who have, have had the same amount of damage to their life as I did. I know what it's like to suffer with a, a, a cannabis quarry. I know what it, what it means to, to go years and years with being a second-class citizen having your driver's license taken away, you know, just just unable to work, move, travel, yeah. all these things. And so I saw that space as a, as a way of not just giving back, which a lot of people in my community want to do, but I just thought it needed to be a little bit more targeted to that, that group of people, those men who have been incarcerated. an economic empowerment applicant might have jumped Chauncey to the front of the line. But the application process still took more than two years from when he applied in 2017. And in the meantime, the program required Chauncey to secure a storefront, meaning that for two whole years, he was paying rent on a space he wasn't using. And since cannabis is still federally illegal, he wasn't able to use a bank loan to help pay all those bills. No, he tried to go it alone. He funded one big dream by giving up another. He sold his house. So I bought a home a long time ago, back in 2008, right at the height of the the, the financial crisis. Mm. And I bought a house that was dirt cheap. Foreclosure needed to be fixed up. Mm -hmm. I rehabbed it all by myself. And it was going to be for, for me and my new family. You know, and so I lived there for a while and, you know, unfortunately I ended up becoming a single dad, you know, raising you know three kids and the burden was too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to figure out another way to, to live. I couldn't do it the way I have been. And so I sold the house 
and I moved back home. Me and the kids, we all moved back home in my mother's house, in the family home. And I made a lot of money off of selling the house. Wow. Yeah, I ended up selling it in, in 2017. You know, so having it for those those uh, 10 years, I, I got a lot of equity. <laughs> that equity and put it into his potential business. But on top of pouring more than six figures of his own money into this storefront, Chauncey was also expected to court neighborhood leaders to secure what's called a host community agreement. Basically, a letter saying that he's allowed to open up a store in Mattapan. This is one of the areas where he started to feel like the deck was stacked against him. Although I may have known most of the people on the street, Mm. I may have known, you know, I may have known the shop owners. I just didn't know the neighborhood association members. And let's be real that, you know, when I was growing up, I, you know, I I sold weed when I was a kid. And these were the neighborhood association members who would call the cops on us, right? It got harder and harder, but Chauncey stuck it out. To him, this was not just about opening a store. This really was about being a force for good in his community. So when big money investors came knocking, offering him a way out, he didn't budge. I'm always approached by the, with these offers. I've really? probably, I've probably reviewed at least twenty different term sheets and and offers. Twenty. Twenty. Wow. Twenty. At one point, it, it was two or three a, a, a week. Here in Massachusetts, for economic empowerment applicant, we can only give away 49%. We're not supposed to give anymore and maintain control. Yeah. So when they come to us, they start at 49%, regardless of whatever type of conversation you might have, whatever type of experience you may have. They, they just know that they're going to take half of your company just about, and then tack on all types of other management fees and whatever you can possibly do to dilute your company or dilute your, your worth in your company. If he wasn't even in control of the company, then it was all for nothing. He wouldn't be able to ensure that all the ambitious goals that he had for the business would even materialize. All these investors cared about was making sales. To him, they were vultures. But while they circled overhead, he waited about two years to find out if he'd get approved for a business license. And it wasn't clear what was even taking so long. At least the vultures kept in touch. As for the city? There was just complete silence from the city. Not a word. And I kept calling. I kept, you know, making phone calls, emailing. No response whatsoever. So by the time Chauncey rolled into a meeting at Mildred Avenue Community Center in Mattapan on a cold January night in 2019, he already felt at his wit's end. On the agenda that night was a different pitch from a cannabis business that also wanted to get buy-in from Mattapan residents. How did you find yourself there? Like, what what made you want to go? Like, were you scoping out the competition? Exactly. That It was part of that. And I think that, yes, I, I, I did want to see the competition. And the competition was far more than he had bargained for. After the break, we find out who and what Chauncey was up against. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. 
you've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. Welcome back. When we last left off, Chauncey Spencer was headed into a community meeting about a rival cannabis business also trying to set up shop in Mattapan. And it's like he was carrying a weight around his neck. His own application was in limbo. He was running out of money, and it felt like there was no help coming from the city. Enter his competition. So my name is Tito Jackson. I am not related to Michael Marlon, Jermaine, or any of those other brothers, although I am great fans of theirs. Shout out to them. Tito Jackson was a Boston city councilor for seven years and a former candidate for mayor, as well as... The owner of a cannabis company called Verdant Medical. In the two years that Chauncey's application sat in limbo, Tito had run unsuccessfully for mayor in 2017, later left city council, and somewhat unsurprisingly, re-emerged a short time later in the cannabis industry. But under the shiny new umbrella of a large multi-state company. So when I ended up coming out of the council, I was actually approached by multiple cannabis companies. One of the companies that I spoke with was a company called, at that time, Sea Hunter. And at mm-hmm. this point, it's morphed and gone to an IPO company called Tilt. For them, he's a natural asset. He's already got connections. And before you call Tito a sellout, it's important to remember that he has a lot in common with Chauncey. He, too, wants to start more than just a business. When we look at the wealth gap in the city of Boston between Black families and white families, and by the way, these are not my numbers. This is from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. In 2015, they came out with a study called The Color of Wealth, and your listeners can look this up online, and they showed that the median net worth, so your, your median net worth is how much you own minus how much you owe, right? The median net worth of a white family in Boston is $247,500. The median net worth of a black family in Boston is $8. Oh, wow. You know, people ask, so you were a city councilor. How did you end up selling drugs? You know, and I had people when I first got in, people were calling my mama. You know what Tito's doing? He's out here selling them that daggone tweets. You know, so um, so, (laughs) uh, one of the main reasons that ex-city counselor gets into this is to deal with these issues of disparity. And I'd be damned if it's only rich white guys, you know, in Gucci loafers who are the ones who dominate this industry as I stand and sit idly by and uh, choose not to uh, enter it. So that that is one of the reasons why I decided to get into this space. And that's also one of the reasons that he wanted to open up a shop in Mattapan. So under state law, every applicant for a marijuana license has to hold a community outreach meeting where they present their business to the neighborhood and they take questions. Dan Adams from The Globe was there that night when Tito pitched his business to the community in 2019. 
and he says it was packed, standing room only. At times, I almost felt like this presentation, he was drawing from his, uh, his old stump speech from the mayoral campaign trail. And he was saying, look, you know, you know me. I've been a member of this community for a long time. I've, I've represented your interests. And basically, you know I'm a good guy. You know that I care about equity. Um, and, you know, his, his plan had this very aggressive commitment to hiring formerly incarcerated people, to helping other minority-owned businesses get off the ground. So he was basically saying, look, I'm, I, you, you know what my values are, and, I'm, and this business is just another way of me trying to live them out. And Dan says a key selling point to this room full of mostly Black residents was the promise that Tito would be opening a, quote, 100% Black-owned business, a claim that Chauncey couldn't stomach especially considering he knew all about Tito's arrangement with Tilt. Chauncey saw himself as the guy who was actually trying to open up a 100% Black-owned business and hitting roadblocks every step of the way. It sounds like you're listening to the speech that Tito's giving, and you're sort of like a pot simmering on the stove. And there's a boiling over point, and I'm wondering... Could you pick out when that exact point was? Like, was it the 100% Black-owned claim? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was exactly the, the 100% Black-owned claim. And I do remember that part clearly because I, I, I sunk in a little bit because everyone applauded. Mm. And, you know, and I was just so upset. I, I said, you know, no, no, absolutely not. In reality, at that point, the majority of the financial support and a lot of the sort of lobbying and and legal muscle behind this enterprise was actually being provided by this very large multi-state operator, Tilt Holdings. I didn't intend to stand up and and make a speech or, or confront him, but I did. And I don't do a lot of public speaking. I do remember saying that you will not replace what we are trying to do here. And we are a local family-owned company who has been locked out of the process up until now. And you will not replace us. You will not engage in this, this, these types of behaviors. I expected better from you. Now, as we mentioned, Chauncey was not just up against Tito, but also Tilt Holdings, which was backing Tito. And Dan says Chauncey was right to feel like he was David up against Goliath. There was a lot of fine print to this deal. It basically set up Tilt to be the gatekeeper of a lot of different critical aspects of the business. It gave Tilt the ability to veto board members, to veto a sale of the company. You had to consult with Tilt to set the salaries of your executives and employees. You had to use the lawyers recommended and provided by Tilt. You had to use the real estate people. Uh, In fact, Tilt, in some cases, would be your landlord. They would own the property and you would essentially be like leasing it back from them. And so basically what these contracts were was two dozen syringes stuck into different parts of the uh, body of the business and just sucking out you know, the, the revenue, sucking out the blood through a bunch of different means. They were skimming on every possible revenue stream, whether it was the rent or the product sales. There was a fee per product that got paid to tilt. And so everywhere where money went from one bucket to another, there they were to take a cut of it. They have their hand in every pot, but what else? What do they get out of this? 
For Tilt, the benefit of this was the ability to essentially control more stores than state law otherwise would have allowed it to control. And they could then turn around to their investors and say, we directly own three licenses, but here are these other stores where we have these very involved relationships. And yes, we are not the licensee on paper, but we might as well be. And here's how here, you know, here's all the ways we're capturing revenues from these stores. They're you know they're basically like captive affiliate stores. It's an even more onerous relationship than you might see in like a franchise situation. You know, if someone is a franchisee of of McDonald's or something like that. You know, McDonald's can tell you a lot about how to run the business, but like ultimately, you know, if you want to sell it or close it down or do something like that, that's you know that's up to you as like the local McDonald's person. Mm-hmm. These relationships wouldn't even give you that freedom. Can you tell us who ultimately won the license? Well, the winner is, it's complicated. Indeed, it is. The Neighborhood Association endorsed Tilt and Tito Jackson. That gave Tito the community approval he needed to move forward with his business plan. More than two years after his initial application, Tito is now in the process of opening his first Verdant store. And to add insult to injury, his shop will sit in the same location that Chauncey held while he waited for his application to come through. But it never did. Chauncey says his landlord recognized that his application was, quote, dead in the water, and that Tito was more likely to win neighborhood support. And if you're thinking that Tito is the unambiguous winner in this situation, I would think again because the grass is not necessarily greener for him over at Verdant Medical. Tito learned that Tilt actually never intended to give him full ownership of his business. And now he's working to sever his relationship with them. If he knew then what he knows now, he says he doubts he would make that same deal twice. Sadly, you know, you have folks who have different objectives, and if their objective is only the bottom line, yeah, And I would submit, you know, anyone who's listening, in particular people of color who are listening to this, the biggest lesson is be careful who you get in bed with. I came at this to try to help as many people of color as possible get into to this space. Although there are folks and, and people I've dealt with, but also multiple people who I've talked to in this industry who are really not about equity. They're really about greed. And as for Chauncey, he was down, but he's not out. In fact, he's going through the process again, this time in the city of Cambridge, which has new, more robust social equity protections at the local level. And this time, he's not alone. He has the backing of a little mom-and-pop shop. Maybe you've heard of them? The cannabis company Cureleaf, that runs dispensaries in more than 23 states. Chauncey says this arrangement is different from the other offers he's had in the past. For starters, there's not much in it for Curaleaf. I don't have to give a single drop of equity. This is all really just goodwill. Wow. Yeah. So you still own the whole thing? The entire thing. That's impressive. Yeah, it's it's definitely impressive, which is the reason why I would love for other companies to do this. Mm-hmm. It should not just be just one. And it doesn't have to be a whole lot that a partnership like that it doesn't it doesn't require a whole lot of of time it doesn't require necessarily even money chauncey says it's still not a perfect solution trying to compete on a playing field designed to favor big business 
drained his finances and shook his hope for a program that promised things would be different. I felt as if the program was itself under attack. The promise of the, the program was under attack. The program promised that people you know, who have been affected by the war on drugs would be able to move their business forward mm-hmm. without any type of shenanigans that we were seeing from big business. So in the end, Chauncey, the independent holdout, finds himself working with a big business. And Tito, the corporate-backed former politician, is now trying to sever ties with his corporate partners. It's weird how that stuff works out, isn't it? For what it's worth, Dan Adams says regulators have learned from what happened to Chauncey and Tito in Mattapan. He published an investigation into Tilt and the state's social equity program in The Globe in 2019. And since then, there have been big changes. So one thing that happened is that Boston, very much, I think, in response to this reporting and what they were hearing from people like Chauncey, completely changed its system for approving local cannabis businesses. It is now a public process. There are now clear standards for who gets a license and who doesn't. And one of the most critical things that happened alongside this ordinance, the city established a one-to-one ratio of equity applicants to other applicants or general applicants. So every month they have a meeting where they vote on the licenses. A general applicant only gets to go forward when an equity applicant also gets to go forward. It's a huge step, but is it enough? Legal weed remains a big dollar game in Massachusetts. And Chauncey wonders if there isn't something inherently self-defeating about promising equity while creating an economy where only big business can flourish. It's still a conversation that gets lost a lot when we talk about who should be prioritized in the cannabis space. Mm. Is it going to be people who have not been directly impacted, regardless of color? Are the people who have been directly affected by the war on drugs and their family members going to have a place? And what does that look like? Does it have to be the large dispensary? Mm-hmm. Do we have to, to make our companies look like a corporation? And are we going to have to hire you know, consultants and attorneys, CPAs, and all these things just to move our small business forward that should probably look more like a bodega? After all, no one opens up a bodega or a corner store to get rich. On our next episode, all of those regulatory hoops that you have to jump through to open a cannabis business, that's just the price for entry, right? Well, not really. Not if everyone doesn't have to jump through the same hoops. There were to be points for minority ownership. Well, we were eligible. However, many of the other white groups put women as their leaders. So they received the minority points, gave them an even added advantage. Next time on Something Sets Sights on Arkansas for a story about government corruption. On Something is a labor of love, reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. Special thanks to Dan Adams from the Boston Globe, whose reporting inspired today's episode. 
It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Today's episode was produced by Joe Erickson and Matthew Simonson. Our editor is Dennis Funk. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped make this episode in the show notes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Don't listen to the silly people who are saying masks, masks don't work and all that other silly stuff. Let's get to a point. Let's hold tight. We've come. We didn't come this far to only come this far. I exactly. Want, I want to see all of y'all uh, as we turn up in 2022. Um, and we could we could play Lil John turn down for what and, and party our behind off. <laughs> It'll be the roaring twenties. That's what's up. Yo! Yeah. <laughs>